with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a brand new podcast series by This Week Community News. Hello, I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week and Primary Custodian of ThisWeekNews.com. So what is Marching Orders? Well, I'll tell you. Central Ohio is home to several veterans who have fought in such conflicts as World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Afghanistan, Iraq, and many, many other places overseas, like Kuwait, Yemen, Somalia. The list goes on and on. We want you to hear the accounts of those who've served our country. These are their stories, in their own words. These were their marching orders. Let's get started. It is an honor and a privilege to introduce our guest today. He's a World War II Army veteran who was part of the 508th Parachute Infantry of the 82nd Airborne Division that dropped in behind enemy lines prior to the Normandy invasion in June of 1944. He has a multitude of medals and honors, among them the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Presidential Unit Citation, Combat Infantry Badge, and so many. I'll let him tell you the rest of here in just a few moments. Oh, and this year he was inducted into the Ohio Military Hall of Fame. And he has streets and ball fields named after him, as well he should. From Johnstown, Ohio, Don Jakeway, thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much for having me inviting me. I appreciate it. And with him is his son, Kim Jakeway, and his name should sound familiar. He spent 33 years of his life in education, 26 of which is at Johnstown Monroe High School and Johnstown Monroe, and eight of those years is principal at Johnstown Monroe. Kim, thank you for coming. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. So first, Don, just to help listeners get to know you just a little bit, for starters, um, I know you have a lot of medals and honors, so tell us about some of the ones that you have. I went over a few here, but you've got several other as well. Well, I got right now, I have... I start out with I I have my uh, uh, my wings that uh, you get only if you're a paratrooper. Then I got uh, two combat stars with that, and then I have the bronze arrowhead, which is only given to the people who made the invasion of Normandy. The first one's in. Uh, I got uh, oh I go on and on. I got the uh, purple heart with a cluster, which means that I've been wounded more than once. And then um, I've got um, five cam- or four campaign medals, uh, which would have been Normandy, um, Holland, Belgium, and Germany, those combat stars. I got, um, uh, I got the Victory Medal. I got the European Theater of Operation Medal. I got, uh, uh, by the way, I got the Good Conduct Medal. <laughs> <laughs> What's the good conduct medal? What does that for? Yeah, that's for not been getting any any problems with the that you know of. Uh, uh, if they um, you had a problem, it's it's for being um, it's it's called a good conduct medal. It's a screaming eagle. <laughs> you got the French Legion. Well, I got I got the um, I got the, from France. I got the um, the Medal of Honor. From France, I got the second one from France is the uh, uh, from the uh, French consulate in Washington D.C. I got another one from the one in Chicago. Then I got the uh, French Fort de Guerre with palm. That's their highest decoration. 
The second one is a, the orange lanyard. That's the highest uh, Holland decoration. Then I got the Belgium citation with uh, with Fom, and um, uh, anyway, that's the kind of the basics of the, of the ones I got. You know, I got so just one or two. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and, and tell us a little bit about your family. So you're a married guy. You've got a few children, grandchildren, great grandchildren. Well, my wife Rini and I have been married now 72 years, and we're still banging around. And uh, uh, I have a I have a grandson. Uh, I have, well, I have a, three sons and a daughter. I have Donnie and, and Denise and Kim and David. And then I got um, about six grandchildren and some great-grandchildren. Now, one of my oldest grandchildren is a federal special agent, and he, he works out of the federal building here in Columbus. And uh, he's been a bodyguard to Kerry, and he's been, he was an air marshal, and... and uh, he was in his. Uh, he was in the Marine Corps during the uh, uh, Iraqi Freedom, and uh, uh, so I've um, I've been blessed with a, a. And then I never will forget a little story real quick. My oldest granddaughter was married on June the ninth, June the sixth, two thousand nine, and we were sitting at the reception, and everybody was laughing and having a good time and. And uh, I got thought, well, if I hadn't made it back, I know at least 40 reasons I shouldn't be here. Easy. <clears throat> and uh, to think about all the hear that lot going on. So I got a wonderful family. This man sitting here beside me is a godsend. He takes me to all my speaking engagements, and he's always the first one we call on if we need help or whatever. I'm just part of the entourage. <laughs> and so you also have great-grandchildren, and you have a great-great-grandchild? Well. And so what did you do in your, uh, for a living after you got out of the military? Well, when I came first home, I went, um, I went to work at a shell station pumping gas with the old pump, you know, pump handle. And I worked there for a while, and that, I, I, get, I learned so much about everything in there, so I left there. And I went to um, back to um, the depot over here in Columbus, and I worked in the director of the uh, uh, manager of the uh, parcel post department. And I worked there for a while. Then I went down to Heise Glass in Newark, became the personnel director there. Then um, I got hired at Shell Shell Oil. Just, uh, this guy had 23 service station, and he was a distributor. I was a I was their chief accountant, and then when they uh, sold out, I went to a place called Agritech Steel. I was their chief accountant there for years, and then I got a I got a job at um, Ebco Manufacturing Company here on Hamilton Road, 1963, and um, it's drinking fountains, right? Yeah, there's the water fountains, Oasis water fountains and dehumidifiers and humidifiers. <clears throat> so in 1972, I became director of the international department, and, and I traveled to over 100 different countries selling these products. And uh, uh, actually, I left there in 1980. I went to work then for Tech International, or Tech River in Johnstown, Ohio. Worked there 11 and a half years as their personnel director. And then I re retired in 1992. And I know you've uh, 
you've been involved with numerous organizations. Tell me about some of those. Well, I was involved with a lot of them. I was involved with Kiwanis. I was president of the Kiwanis Club that we had. Uh, we had, uh, uh, and I was also the commander of the American Legion a number of years. Uh, I was with the VFW as a commander. Uh, yeah, so many things. I put the, I put the, uh, at the high school, uh, I put the flags up at the football games and take them down, have for years and years. So, so many other things. I've been president of the town council, acting mayor. Um, so what they done, in turn, that's when they come back and named the street after me, and they named. Then I coached football through the high school with my son here. He was a coach. I was assistant coach, and we did real well. And um, I coached basketball, and I coached baseball for 20 years in the Little League. I built a Little League field and uh, uh, put hundreds of kids through the program. And uh, <clears throat> so I was tied up with quite a few. So I always promised the good Lord if I ever got home, I'd, that's what I would do. And I would uh, do everything I can to serve the community, and I do this all in voluntary stuff. Well, Johnstown's been your community. You were born and raised in Johnstown. That's right. Graduated from Johnstown in 1942. That's correct. And uh, so you you had a, a scholarship offer for college. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, I played I played football uh, for Johnstown, and and I made I made um, the Ohio think uh, for football, <laughs> and I still got uh, and I have a. Um, I made it recently the uh, I made the Hall of Fame from Johnstown for football but when I went to uh, school put my application in at uh, Capital University and they offered me a scholarship for $200 and I said well now that was 1942 so my dad was working for about 45 cents an hour and there's eight of us in the family so uh, the paratroopers offered $50 more than that regular infantry, which is $100 a month. So that's that was one of the incentives. So I turned a scholarship down because I didn't have no way to get over there to begin with. They wanted me to work on a training table, and I said, no, I'm going to do that. And so World War II seemed like a much safer bet. Than <laughs> 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 and that gets us into our story. I liked Capital, though. Capital was a good school. But you enlisted in November 1942, and it was 1944 that you landed in a tree next to a church not far from Normandy's beaches. Tell us about that. Well, when we were going into Normandy, um, they it was at night, and uh, of course going across the channel, was, uh, I had stood up and could see down, see all these thousands of ships crossing the channel, Flew over Jersey, Guernsey Island, the aircraft, then aircraft fire was coming up. When I jumped, I could look down and see all this water below me. Now, I weighed like 325 pounds with all the equipment I was carrying, all the stuff I had. And so I pulled my risers just so I didn't want to land in the water. I didn't know how deep it was. Some did, and of course they drowned. But I going backwards, I landed in this tree and come down through the tree and about eight to ten feet above the ground. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I uh, scared to death. <laughs> uh, 
I let a lot of people say, were you scared? And I said, I'll have to admit I was scared, yes. And um, so I, I couldn't get my buckle, uh, things unbuckled, they were so tight. So I took my trench knife out of my shoe boot, cut the suspension line, dropped to the ground, run over to the closest hedgerow I could come to. Now they issued us a clicker, I didn't bring one today, but they issued us this clicker and one click was to be answered for two clicks if it's a friend, you know. So I'm sitting there in that hedgerow and I'm going, man, I'm not going to sit out here in the dark clicking that thing. The Germans going to have to look a little better than that to find me. So when I sat there for about a half an hour, see nobody, because I had to be in one of the first planes, Scott, that went in. Because I, all the people, I never saw any personnel for 10 days. And um, when I went back over there in 2011, the little, and a little, we were there at the churchyard, and a little lady there uh, with an interpreter said she was 14 years old that night, and she seen the parachutes coming down. And the Germans were bivouacked in her yard and in her house, and if I'd have drifted about another 50 yards, I'd have landed right into them. And you're listening to marching orders. And you had told me earlier, uh, Don, that... Um some people actually landed in the water. You said it was deep. and, uh, and Well, in some types, about four feet in some places, three, about three to four feet. And, um, yes, I've seen some of the first American paratroopers I've seen dead were floating in the water face down. So you managed to uh, survive that, only to make it over to the Battle of the Bulge. We've, we've heard a lot of stories about the Battle of the Bulge, but from your perspective, when you when you think of the Battle of the Bulge, what did you see? What was it like there? Well, to me, Battle of the Bulge was the worst of all, and I went through all the way through Normandy and had some rough ones there, but, and, and I got wounded in Holland. But in Battle of the Bulge, that's, we were not allowed, of course, to stay in a building. Um, we um, couldn't stay within a village. And, of course, the weather there at that time, the weather was 23 below zero in the daytime. We were just approaching winter at that time. And there, and the uh, snow was about three foot deep in the ground. But anyway, we, we, uh, we'd be fighting about every day. There was something going on all the time. And, of course, we had, at the sleep, we dug our foxholes. And I was a sergeant, and I had to keep my men alive. I'd make them dig foxholes, and then we'd move about 50 yards, and they hated me, but I saved their lives because I kept them alive. But going ahead a little bit, on the 30th of January, 1945, uh, pulled, uh, we, were in a, we just had a firefight, and I pulled my men back into some shrub, and they were hunkered down in the snow. And a sniper killed two of my men. <clears throat> And I didn't think, I said to myself, well, I'm not going to make it, but I'm going out and get that sniper because he'd killed two of them in Normandy at my other squad. But we got him, too. But anyway, um, we were out. I, I took Charlie White. He didn't want to go, and I said, well, I'm a staff sergeant. You're private. You're going. And we started walking out through the snow, and I didn't walk about 30 yards. I just estimated about 30, 40 yards, and I had this feeling that, all over. I had a chill up my back. I knew something was wrong. I had this M1 in my hand like this. And I looked over to the right real slow. There laid that German sniper pointing his Mauser rifle right at me. And all he had done, he could have he killed me with one shot easy. 
And I just went Waffenidligen Honda Ho, which means throw down your weapons and put your, put your hands, and two of them jumped up in snow capes. It was so hard for me to not shoot both those men. But I'm not inhuman, so I didn't, I didn't shoot them. But we captured them, took them back into the battalion headquarters, turned them over to the, uh, seep, uh, the command post there, went back and dug a whole uh, foxhole that night. And I get up the next morning, and I'm shaking all over. My hands are shaking. It wasn't because I was scared. I just knew something was going to happen to me today. Well, a runner come down, <clears throat> said, Sergeant, you wanted up to the battalion CP. And I went up there, and Colonel Mendez, our commander, said, I want you to take your squad, get down through this lane, through this woods, and knock out that 88. And, and there's men around us, because we got to go down through there, so you're going to be point for battalion. And I said, sir, I only got six men left. He said, but you got to go. So I'm walking down. And one thing I'd never done, Scotty, I'd never let any of my men go before me. I was, I was the, squad, the leader. And I'm walking along this bank, just off of the road, and a sniper shot me through the chest. Went in here, went out behind my shoulder blade, knocked me off the bank. I crawled, didn't, I, wasn't, I was still conscious a little, and crawled up to the tree. The sniper shot the bark off of the tree above my head, and I passed out. But when I come to, there was an American medic taking my paratrooper boots off because they loved our boots, you know. Well, I had a 45 in my holster there, and I said, bro, you might get them off, but you won't wear them because he thought I was dead, and he started crying. I had the utmost respects for the medics. They carry no weapons out in the middle of the conflict. They holler medic. They get out there. But I passed out again, and I wound. I woke up in this field hospital, they had me all taped up, and they put me in this, um, uh, this ambulance, take me back into Liège to the uh, division hospital. And on the, on the way, there was two German wounded, another GI, myself, and a driver. And uh, <clears throat> as we were going along, my stretcher collapsed. The arms on the stretcher collapsed around me. And I'm laying right on the top behind the driver. Well, it didn't hurt because it's nighttime, you know, and the road was bumpy. And we went up just a little while. All went that ambulance went off, off off the side of this mountainside. It rolled side over side over side, not two or three times, but it rolled down that mountainside. It turned upside down in the river, and it killed everybody in the ambulance but me. So were I you passed out at that time? Or pardon? Were you passed out at that time when I you landed? I was going down. Uh, I, I was because I that thing was going down that mountainside. I passed out, but it killed everybody in there but me because my stretcher held me in there. And uh, anyway, I laid there. That was about. I could see my watch. I come to it. I could see my watch. It was about 20 minutes after 12 midnight. And um, I laid there to about 6:30 in the morning. Now the water wasn't up on me. It was it was flowing because it was turned up. We're kind of on the side like this. And uh, uh, some GIs would come along the road, and they seen the ambulance, and they came down and they found me, carried me up the mountainside, took me, uh, they bound me up, and again with some tape, took me into uh, Liège, got in there about 8.30 in the morning, and I, I woke up the next day about 11.30. That was my trip home. So you're there at the bottom of this hill, 
and you and you do come to did you have any other injuries from that fall or were you strapped so tightly in into the gurney those those unbelievable why did my stretcher arms collapse i mean they were tight they were right up around me and it hadn't been for that like it did them it just threw them all over the place got bands but the bands come loose but that stretcher held me tight were there german forces in the area well, where we were, we were getting close to Liège, no. We had just left the area where we fought the Germans. We were just getting ready to go into the Siegfried Line. That's where I got wounded. And then when they took me back to Liège, we were behind the lines. That's where we had our hospital. Kim Jakeway, I know you've heard this story probably quite a few times. Our listeners can't see your face, but you had that look that just says it's almost as though it's the first time you've heard it, it like you're just in that much awe just knowing uh, what your dad had gone through yeah i um every once in a while i'll, I'll kind of like catch something oh, i've never heard that before you know? <laughs> but uh yeah it's uh, it's like you hear it for the first time it's uh, it's compelling and like he said uh for uh 40 reasons he shouldn't be here i'm glad of all 40 of them <laughs> well you know one of the things like in the ardents they couldn't bring our food in, and it was, it was tough. We were hungry. We had no ammo. We were running out of ammo. We only carried a few bandoliers. And finally, one day, the skies cleared, and they dropped, and the first thing we run to was was the red shoes to get some ammo, you know, the bandoliers. Then when we went to the other one to open up, it had the food in. They had K rations. The guy looked at it. Oh, they're all cheese. <laughs> So, so you actually you remained in the army until August, even in 1945. Yes, I uh, I, I came home. I went to uh, Oxford, England, and I went to Coventry. Now I got to tell you a little story about Coventry. It was an industrial city, and I'd go to church there. That beautiful big church, and uh, they just bombed Coventry. But one day I was the church. Next time I was in town, the church was gone, and we were outside of a outside of country a little bit and uh, it, it um, they were still dropping their bombs in there on them <clears throat> but I uh, I was just shipped in the hospital down to Southampton um, took the um, they had the uh, United they called it the United States then but or, uh, then but it was the old West Point troop and it was a hospital ship and they brought us home and landed in Norfolk uh, Virginia, and they took us down to Memphis, Tennessee, and I was in the hospital there. That's where I got discharged from, August the 23rd, 1945. Now, there was a positive experience you were telling me about earlier. Before the uh, Battle of the Bulge, this was the liberation of uh, Jacob's family in 1944. Well, that was, a, that was one of the highlights of my whole time I was in the military. This family had been hiding... It's a long story, and I, and I know it started back in 1938. And they were one of the richest families in Germany. They had big cattle farms. Um, oh, they just, and, uh, but the Germans come in and took away their land, give them 10 cents an acre. Um, and they knew what was coming, so they knew that they had to get out of there, so they decided they had friends in Holland so they knew they had to get into Holland. Uh, and like I said, I was telling you the story. Mother Jacobs, she had this dress with all these buttons on it. 
and she'd put, they, made, they were gold buttons. Then when she'd get in there and visit with them, come back into Germany to her home, they would be the regular buttons again. So when they got into Germany, or into Holland, then uh, Germans took over. Uh, they were gonna take, send a, uh, the Father Jacobs to, uh, to a work camp, they call it, and it's Oswald's, and that's a death camp. Well, he knew that, so they hid in this attic of this house for 25 months. It was 10 by 10, and there was five of them, Rosa and Edith and, and, and Mom and Dad, and, and, and anyway, they, um, uh, Adam, and anyway, they, um, they lived in that house, and the Janssen family, they took that gold that they had sent there, and they paid that Janssen family four, uh, equivalent of $400 a month to live there. The people would charge them to, to hide them there because they knew if the Germans found them there, they'd kill everybody, including the family, you know. Now that little house that they, the house was living in was the only house that was a flat roof and it's still standing today. All the other houses were blown down and um, where the Germans could see the, over the top of them, see their artillery from up and around, up on the hill in Bergendahl. But anyway, um, uh, Rosa, who was one of the one of the girls, she um, Bert had told us that just a few days before they were liberated, she just said she'd wish a bomb would fall on her and kill her. She was so distressed. Well, she was crossing an intersection up in Bergendahl, and a Messerschmitt 109 came over and dropped a fragmentation bomb, and killed her instantly. They got mm -hmm. a great big, got a great big banner and plague up there with her name and stuff on it. And uh, so I, I was pulled back up. I was pulled back up onto the Bergendahl and set, and we had built some slit trenches and, and uh, uh, eaten some K rations there after we pulled back up there. And they, uh, we heard this in the distance, we heard this boom. We knew it was a big railroad gun. And some artillery came in, was coming in. So we run to our slit trenches and John Giacomelli of my squad jumped in my slit trench and I jumped in on top of him and when that thing exploded, it killed him underneath me. It wounded me pretty badly, my face, my, my back and my head and stuff, but it killed him underneath me. And then on top of that, when they carried me to the doctors that worked on me in this field hospital, the doctor and the nurse worked on me and taking a shrapnel out of me and bandaged me up, put me in this tent, <clears throat> and a Metrosmith 109 come over again, strafed the hospital. It killed that doctor and nurse on that very table about 15 minutes after I'd been there. So that was, uh, they, say, they sent me, I got sent back to, I got sent back then to England where I stayed for about three months before I went back to the, in December the 15th to go back to my unit. It is amazing the number of near-death experiences you've had. I mean, just from, just from landing in the tree. Surviving, well, can, surviving some of those battles, getting through the Battle of the Bulge, surviving well, were, a, a, a ride out of there, and then, and then yet even another, even as you're in the hospital, just you've got to, how, how do you, when you look back on that, just that thought of it, just the thought that you've survived all these different times, these different experiences. 
Well, what I, do you think? I, I'll tell you one other thing when I'm in the bulge. It's on Christmas Day, and I had my squad dug in up around on, on the top of this mountainside, and I could look down, and there's a big yellow house, and there's chickens running around in the yard. Now, I could, I'm always a, I'm, I've been, it was always a pretty good cook. So I said, ah, I gotta get, have some Christmas for my guys. So I took, took uh, I don't know if it was Blair who it was, but anyway, we went down and, and uh, caught a chicken, made, and, and it's a clear day, sunshiny. And then it was stupid. We built a little fire in the house. <laughs> the smoke coming out of the chimney, of course. And we just, and I found some potatoes, I don't know what, and I fixed some potatoes and we did a chicken, just getting it going. And I heard this first 88 come in. One would land short, one would go long, and one would be right in the middle. And boy, when we heard that first one hit, we bailed out of there, run back up that mountainside, got back, and when we looked back, the house was gone. Wow. So you had one more, just one more experience. Then on top of that, uh, the house there was a house right beside us. I was letting my men go in, get warm, and we were just uh, just going the house to get warm. And finally, I was I decided I'd go in, had need some K rations. All the ones some 88s come in again, and it hit that house. And there was a cattle barn. A cat, the cattle barn is right on the side of the house. I jumped out of there, and I landed in this uh, trench behind the cows, and that thing hit that house, and the whole roof come down on top of me. I can hear them guys say, hey, Sarge, you okay? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> Get me out of here. But, you know, I can tell you, I can tell you other experiences, but some of those things, and then on top of that, at that point, we were next to G Company, H Company, and um, uh, one of my guys was out on point, and he come running back in. He says, I said, what are you doing in here? You're not supposed to be relieved, not unless you know something. He says, well, there's something out there, somebody out there. I said, well, you go back out, and he wouldn't go. And I said, well, come on, we're going, I'll go with you. We went out, went down through this big ditch, could look down, and there were some cows. But what we didn't know, about f five o'clock that next morning, was a Herman Goring battalion attacked our hill. And we had direct orders not to leave. No, I don't brag a lot about this, but we, we practically wiped out that whole Herman Goring battalion because we stayed. The paratroopers were something special, Scott. You mentioned it's really, really difficult to get into the 508 especially. Yep, it was. It was. It was. It took over when I, when we when we first went in. It took over 2,400 recruits to make 130 paratroopers, and the training was out of this world. Well, I could tell you story after story after story. We had a big guy named John Lukatis from Flint, Michigan, and we were on maneuvers there one time, and he was sitting against this tree. And I'm sitting on the other, over here a little ways from me. I can look up, and there's two great big tree snakes coming down the tree. And I knew he hated snakes. I knew because we run into them in the swamps and things. <laughs> I said, John, you better come over here a minute. He said, you want to talk to me? Come over here. 
I said, okay, but you better look up above your head. And he did, and the next thing you know, he was running down through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I won't go on any further like that. As well. <laughs> and you're listening to Marching Orders, and it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, despite all those hard times, I know there were, just as just as liberation was a really positive experience, and I'm sure you had some conversations with some of your um, your brothers in arms and. Is there anything that you look back and, and something, just a really fond memory that comes to mind? Well, yes, I got I got a lot of a lot of good memories. Um, uh, when I come back from when I come back from Normandy, uh, we we had 130 men in our company and we come back with 39, and I was a mess because. The whole story is I had slid over, jumped over this wall and slid down this bank through a big cow pile. <laughs> and, and, and can you imagine now, I jumped in there on the 6th of June, and we got out of there July the 37th. And July the, we was in there 37 days, got out of there on July the 13th. And when I walked in that, my squad tent, there was a guy sitting across the, on, a, on the bunk. He didn't say nothing. I didn't. Pretty soon, I said, "I said you look familiar. I think I've seen you somewhere." He said, "You did. You did." He's all excited. You know, I must have looked a mess. Turned out he was name was Bill Tracy, and he lived in Newark, Ohio, 18 miles from Johnstown. Wow. And his their dad and them used to run a sporting goods store, and I used to be the guy to go down from the high school to buy the stuff. That's right. So we palled around. So we go out. One of the fond memories I have is about how many close encounters we had. We come back in without a pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a lot of other fond memories. I met a lot of nice people. You know, we didn't meet a lot of civilians in the in the battle zones where we were. Like in Normandy, we were in there almost six hours before the invasion started. And in Holland, we were 100 miles behind the lines. And then when we went into the Battle of the Bulge, we rode those cattle trucks up to up to Werbermont. And by the time we got up there, the 101st came in behind us, and the Panthers Division cut our convoy in two, and they went into Bastogne. We went on in up to Werbermont, and a lot of memories from that. A lot of memories. You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. I've never killed a German face to face. But I know that I've had a lot of people say, have you killed anybody? And I said, well, you know, that's when I wrote my book, Paratroopers Do or Die. So I know I was pretty involved every day. And so after all those experiences, you come home, you're trying to adjust to civilian life again. You mentioned to me earlier, it took you 40 years to tell your story. What was it like for you to adjust to civilian life after having gone through all that? Well, I put everything away, Scott, for 40 years. 40 years. One night, I mean, they didn't, they didn't know nothing. I didn't talk about my experiences, my, although, although I had my uniform and stuff like that, and people knew. But when I got home from the hospital, I got off of the bus there at the intersection, and nobody... There's nobody there to welcome you home. Um, there was horse and buggy even going by. The Model T Fords, Model A Fords. And uh, I sat there for about half an hour. 
decided to walk home, which was three and a half miles. I took my duffel bag. My parents didn't even know I was coming home. And uh, when I when I got home, <clears throat> it was a it was a nice feeling to know that was quite a circle. You had mentioned also you returned to Normandy in 2014, and you spotted that same tree you landed in. That's right, we did. <laughs> what was that feeling like? You, by the way, you had you had um, retired as a staff sergeant. Is that right? Yes. So what was that feeling like? Well, it, you know, I didn't think it. I had some people, friends over there, and they found the little church. It was out in the countryside. They had a heck of a time finding it because there are quite a few of them around. But when they found the church and I got there, I recognized the tree. And uh, uh, and they they took the hedgerow uh, that, that that I'd run to, and they'd cut it down, all of the stumps and things were there. But uh, yeah, and I and the old, one of my old buddies was there. Came running there and says, "Hey, Jake, I found that clicker, which I had thrown away." <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't. He was only kidding. But I got him at home. The little one he gives me. The kids like it. But you know, you know the idea. The idea of getting home. You can't talk about how it was. You can talk about it, but there's no way really you can talk about that anti-aircraft fire coming up and the bullets coming at you, the machine gun fire and the 88s. Uh, white sulfur bomb, tree bursts, artillery constantly day after day. And so when I got home, it was a while because after I, I got married in 1946 and it was kind of rough. I, I couldn't get anybody stand up behind me. I know an occasion one time, Father Crosser, bless his heart, he came up behind me, and where I'd been wounded, and he had a bad habit of cut behind you and going like that into your ribs. Well, he did that, and I turned, I turned, was gonna, gonna, I was gonna let him have it. And I, the last minute, I slapped him upside the face and almost knocked him down. I feel, I felt so bad about that. And then another time, one of the guys I'm standing beside watching on the street dancing, they come up and grabbed me around the neck, and I went down. On my knee, I learned a lot of judo and stuff. I threw him right on the dance floor. Well, I made an enemy out of him. I said, well, don't sneak up behind me, you know, because when you're a paratrooper, you're out there a lot of time by yourself. Maybe like, maybe have a guy dug 10 or 15 feet away covering you. So, so my time coming home, after 40 years, why people started calling me. I had a, uh, a World War II veteran once tell me that there were even certain smells that would get to him because he could remember the just the piles of bodies and he could remember just the stench that came from them. And he could, he could just recall whenever he'd smell something like that, it just instantly came back. I can't tell you how many times I sat right beside a dead German soldier eating my K-rations. Hmm. And uh, they weren't, they weren't smelled to get the smell because... We they were we were in the action that just probably happened like within a day or so, mm -hmm. and uh, I know one time we had this battle, and uh, we called in some air bursts. We called in some artillery bursts and things, and they found that ravine just full of dead soldiers. 
German soldiers. And I don't talk about that so much. You know, the only thing I ever killed was a rabbit when I went into service. But they taught us to kill. Hand grenades, rifles, machine guns, mortars, whatever, bayonets. And that, that, that was a tough part about it. I never had to fight a guy with a bayonet because as long as I had ammo, I used it. <laughs> yeah. So what, what advice would you give to a military veteran these days who's just trying to adjust to civilian life? We hear the stories a lot of the, the 22 soldiers a day. What, what advice would you give to somebody who's well, struggling? Everybody, everybody has their different experiences. Mine were kind of nightmarish experiences, and it took me a while to adjust. But I would say that, you know, the guys that's getting into the battles today are probably even worse than what we had, you know. They got all this different type of technology has changed a lot. And um, the guys come back with leg missings or, or want to commit suicide. And what I tell them, how lucky I was that I got the family that I had. I could say I was married in 1946. My first son born in 48. And then about three years after them, and the greatest, I couldn't have a better family than what I've got, including this young man right here. Been married 72 years. You and your wife like playing cards? Yeah, we play. Uh, she, she, she loves to play cards. Well, she can't go very much. She's not feeling all that well. I always hate to leave her now, just like today. I left my daughter with her. Um, but we play cards, and man, does she like to whoop you. <laughs> <laughs> she get a kick out of that. So we play, we play cards, and I keep her fed. They, I tell you, I work the dishes, clean the house, go get the groceries, pay the bills, um, and and I don't regret it a bit. Seventy-two years. Don Jakeway, Kim Jakeway, thank you for coming in and, and telling your story. I also want to acknowledge and thank Tom Cunningham. Uh, he's a Tom is a senior vice commander for the Military Order of the Purple Heart Department of Ohio, and he has been very helpful in finding guests for this program. And we would like to hear from you, our listeners, uh, get your thoughts on, on this marching orders program. It's new, and so we want to hear from you. You can uh, email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com. The subject line is marching orders. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at This Week News. And you can, you'll be able to hear this podcast on, actually on our website at thisweeknews.com. And it will be downloadable on Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. I'm Scott Hummel. God bless. Thank you very much, Scott.